All right, if you've got your Bibles, chapter 4, 1 Peter. And we're going to be starting in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. Hey, just so you know, uh, we have two more weeks left. So uh, we're going to stop. I think we stopped the, the week before, uh, um, what is it, Thanksgiving? I got my holidays all messed up. So two more weeks, and then we'll be done. We'll take a break for the holidays, and then we'll come back in the very first part of January with another series. So chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that we can study it, we can learn from it, but more than anything, thank you that we can apply it to our lives and see it uh, bring about change. And, and Lord, I, I pray this morning as we look at these verses that uh, we would see the positive aspect of this idea of suffering. Uh, we, we tend to want to reject it, Father. We tend to want, not want to talk about it, deal with it. We want to escape it. But Father, help us to see that there is um, a reason for the suffering that comes into our lives, and you use it to perfect us and to mature us. Give us a different perspective as we continue to dig into this, that, that it would uh, change the way we look at life and the way we look at eternity. And more than anything, that we would continue to want to live lives that seek to do your will, not our own. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the morning. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You know, it, we joke about it, and I kind of joked about it in my email, but um, it, it's, it does get old talking about suffering, believe me. Um, I know you, you know it's old because you're tired of hearing it. It's even harder to have to teach it. Uh, but the more I've dug into it, the more I study it, the, and the more I think about it, um, you know, Peter's really not teaching about suffering. He's teaching about uh, spiritual maturity. He's teaching about sanctification, growing in Christ's likeness. The suffering is simply an extension of that. So as we grow in Christ's likeness, as we uh, live godly lives, suffering happens. It's, it's just part of it. It's just like if you work out with weights, you get sore muscles. If you um, work out in a yard, you get dirty. It's, it's part of what comes with the territory. But his emphasis is not so much on suffering as it is on um, living godly lives, letting your godliness show up in behavior. And yet, what kind of struck me this week as, as I was preparing for this morning this, this whole idea of uh, wanting to escape suffering, we don't want to suffer. And I started thinking about um, a song came to my mind that I've, I've heard many, many times, but didn't know the, uh, I thought Bob Dylan wrote it because he sang it, but he didn't actually write it. It was written in 1854. And, and just listen to the lyrics. 
It says, let us pause in life's pleasures and count its many tears while we sup sorrow with the poor. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. And that's really kind of the way we live our lives. You know, we don't want hard times. We don't want difficulty. We, we do everything in our power to escape it. We like pleasure. We don't like pain. Um, and and that's, that's human nature. Um, I think you'd be a little bit weird, sick, if you sought after pain and you wanted to suffer. But as Christians, and part of studying the book of verse Peter, he keeps driving home this issue of suffering. And what are we going to do with it? Well, I cannot study First Peter. And that may be, you may say, well, I'm never going to study First Peter again. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that suffering's a part of being a believer. So this morning, we're talking about the call to suffering yet again. Um, but I hope by the time you leave this morning, you're going to see it from a slightly different perspective maybe than you have over the last few weeks. The key verse for me is, is verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, and that's key, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So wrapped up in that one little verse, we see the doing good, which we've talked about for weeks now, that what Peter's trying to tell us is to do the will of God, do what is godly, do what is uh, righteous, holy, what he would have you do. But knowing that when I do, I'll suffer. But the key phrase is suffering according to God's will. As we talk this morning, I want you to keep going back to that because you all suffer. We all suffer for different things. Uh, we all suffer for stupidity, um, bad decision-making, um, the sins of others, but that's not what he's talking about. In this case, what he's talking about is suffering that is an extension of doing good, doing what God would have you do. So when you do the will of God, according to the will of God, you will more than likely suffer just as Christ suffered for doing the will of God. That's, that's the point. That's where he's going this morning. So it's according to God's will. That's the key. So keep that in mind as we go through these passages. He says in verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So when you live for God, when you live according to the will of God, you should not be surprised. You shouldn't be shocked when things happen, when you encounter difficulty. And the word there in the Greek is don't think it's strange. Don't don't think it weird, bizarre. Why is this happening to me? Um, I'm living for God and I'm suffering. I don't get this. He's going to tell you, don't think it's strange. Don't think it, it's weird. Expect it. it. It comes with a territory. It's something we should not be shocked or surprised about. When you do the will of God, you will more than likely suffer. Why? Because we live in an environment that doesn't want the will of God to be done. Uh, we live in a, in a world that is uh, under the domain of Satan, and Satan, more, more than anybody, doesn't want the will of God to be done. And so we shouldn't think it's strange. When I do the will of God, when I follow his will, do what he deems good and right, I will probably suffer for it. Shouldn't be surprised. Shouldn't be shocked. And what's really interesting about this Greek word is that it, it's used in the context of oftentimes of rece receiving a guest into your home. Showing hospitality, uh, which is interesting because last, 
<coughs> excuse me, last week he talked about showing hospitality as a sign of love to one another. <clears throat> and I started thinking about this, that um, my, my uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law, my father-in-law is, is deceased, but my wife's parents are godly people, love them to death. Uh, but when my father-in-law was alive, they lived next door. Now, that ought to tell you something um, when your in-laws live next door to you. Um, he retired at one point. He was a salesman, very gregarious, six foot four, um, very outgoing, and he retired. And he had nothing to do. Um, and I, at that time, officed at home. I had a lot to do. And every day I could hear the back door open. And here came Luther, six foot four Luther, bored out of his gourd. And he would come into my office and I would, I would just keep my back to the door. I wouldn't even turn around because I knew it was him. There's nobody else walking in my house. And I would just keep typing. What are you doing? I'm working. Looks like you're busy. Yeah, I'm really busy. I got a lot. I'm just, man, I'm so busy. You know, it's good to be busy. And then he would just, he would launch and he'd just start talking and I'd just keep typing and he would tell stories and they're stories I'd heard a hundred times. And what I didn't know is it was, the, he was had the early stages of dementia. And so his stories became even more repetitive than they had ever been. And he would just sit there and he would just talk and talk and talk. And it drove me absolutely nuts. His wife, on the other hand, I don't mind coming into my house because when she comes into my house, she's a worker and she'll just walk in the house and I'll hear the vacuum turn on and she'll be in there vacuuming. And it used to offend my wife because she'd like, was my house that dirty that my mom comes in and cleans? And then she realized that's her love language. And so I'll walk into the kitchen and she'll be like cleaning the baseboards. Who cleans their baseboards? And she'll be on her hands and knees cleaning the baseboards. I love having her in the home. Because she'll walk in and she, she, she works. She's like a welcome guest. My father-in-law, not so much. Um, that's really what this word is talking about here. That I should receive these fiery trials, and we'll talk about what that means. I should receive them like a welcome guest, like my mother-in-law. Because she's there to do me good. She's there to help me out. And I should want her in my house. My father-in-law wasn't always real grateful that he was in my house because he didn't really do me a whole lot of good. He didn't offer to mow my yard. He didn't offer to, is there anything I can help you with? He just wanted to talk, and I didn't have time to talk. Uh, that's really the picture here. I should, as a Christian, treat the trials that come with my Christian faith like a welcome guest because they're there to help me. Now, everything in me fights that, right? And I know it does in you that <laughs> I don't want any unwelcome guests, and I certainly don't want trials in my life. But Peter's saying, no, no, no. You should see them as welcome guests. Why? Because God has a purpose and a plan behind them. Don't think that they're strange. Don't treat them like they're a foreigner. You know, if I went home today and there was a strange person in my house, I would likely get out my gun. Uh, because you don't belong here. You don't fit in here. You're not here to do me good. You're here to do me harm. That's the way we treat these trials. But remember, trials that come as a result of living the Christian life, living according to God's will. Don't treat them like a foreigner. Don't treat them like an alien, a stranger, somebody who doesn't belong to your, in your home. 
They're there because you're doing the will of God. And God's going to use those things to perfect you. And we'll see in just a second, actually to bless you. So what are these fiery trials that come into your life? Again, the Greek word refers to calamities or trials that test your character. Okay, it's a word that's often used of refining, smelting, taking a precious metal and you heat it up super, super hot and you burn out the impurities. That's what this is talking about. It's a refiner's fire. So when I do the will of God and I do what God would have me do, um, oftentimes you may encounter resentment. People may revile you, as we saw earlier in, in this book. They may insult you. They may malign you because you're doing the will of God. And what's going to be your natural reaction to being maligned and reviled? Well, Peter says, don't revile back. Don't pay back. Your human nature, your sin nature is going to come to the surface and boil up, and it's going to want to pay back, get back, get even. And see, the trial is doing what? You did good, you got conflict, persecution, suffering, and your sin nature bubbles to the surface and you want to pay back and God is exposing something that you didn't know was there. And that's a good thing if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, having your sins exposed is not a good thing because there's not a whole lot you can do about it other than feel guilty about it. As a Christian... If I have my sins exposed, if I have the negative it revealed, I can confess it and receive forgiveness for it. It's a positive. So I did good, got maligned, my sin nature comes to the surface, but God is revealing something that he wants to change. That's why these things happen. They, they reveal things about me that I need to have purified out of my life, and it tests my character. It's not unlike what happened to the Israelites all the time that they were in the wilderness, that God was testing their character. I love this from, from chapter 1. This is not the first time he's talked about this. He says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Remember, that's our hope. We've been born again because there's a future. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, the future, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Same word, fiery trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's the picture? We are living in this life. We're not yet in heaven. We've been saved. We're on our way to heaven. But we're in the sanctifying period of our lives where we are having our character constantly tested. In the midst of doing good, my character gets tested because as I do good, I suffer for it. I get reaction because of it. And it reveals in me some areas I haven't seen that need to be refined, impurities. And we should want that. Why should we want that? Because we want to be like Christ. But the only way we become more and more like Christ is to have the impurities refined out of us. If that doesn't happen, you don't progress. You don't move. You still have that sin hidden there. That's why Paul, uh, David said, you know, 
Look in me. See if there be any hidden thing about me that offends you. Show it to me. As a Christian, you should want that. And one of the best ways to have that happen, according to Peter, is just do good. And when you do good, you'll probably suffer for doing good, and it will expose areas in your life that need to change. And you should see that as a blessing from God. So Jesus said, what? In the world, you will have tribulation. It's going to come. This is what he told the disciples. Get ready. Be prepared. He suffered. We're going to suffer. It's part of living the Christian life. So Peter says, don't treat your trials as unwanted guests. Don't kick them out the door. Don't try to get rid of them. Don't try to escape them. But, but remember, this is always having to do with doing the will of God. If you are suffering for doing your will, that's a different thing. If you're suffering because you're obnoxious, if you're suffering because you're egotistical, if you're suffering because you're prideful, arrogant, that's a different deal. That's not what he's talking about. This is doing the will of God and suffering. You should welcome the trials that come with that. Why? Because they refine. And so he says, instead, rejoice. Bring them on. Why? Because they have impact. They have the ability to change. It literally means be glad. And that, again, that rubs me the wrong way. It's like, really? Be glad because trials are coming into my life? Be glad because I'm suffering? Yes, why? Because God has a plan for the suffering. God is always at work. But the key is do good. Do good. We were, we were praying this morning before uh, you guys got here, and I told uh, Logan and Jonathan, uh, what, what struck me about this is that we're going to suffer one way or the other, right? Everybody suffers. You can suffer for doing good or you can suffer for doing wrong, but you're going to suffer. Wouldn't you rather suffer for the right reasons and have God use that suffering in a positive way rather than suffer for the wrong reasons, which is why he's going to say, don't commit murder, don't be a gossip, don't, don't suffer for the wrong reason, guys. Everyone suffers. But his kind of suffering is beneficial, what he has in mind. So I'm to act like I'm happy to see the trials that come into my life because I realize they're coming as a result of doing good and God's going to use them. That's why he says in verse 12, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, which he's talked about for the last two weeks, we suffer because Christ suffered like he suffered, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's a day coming when we will receive our inheritance, when we will receive our new bodies, we will receive eternal life in its full forms, sinless, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness. And we will be able to rejoice then, but we should also be able to rejoice now because we're in this process moving towards sanctification, glorification. And I should welcome these trials. And I know this is not how we think, and it's most certainly not how the world thinks, but it's how we are to think as believers. When we, we do good, we can expect, don't be surprised when the trials come, the suffering comes, but rejoice in it because God's going to use it to perfect you and make you more like his son. So Jesus told the disciples, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But guess what? You don't. As soon as you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you no longer were a part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world. So as a result, what? It hates you. 
Now, there is a sense in which we are positionally already out of this world, right? We are sons of God, heirs of the kingdom. We are already as if we're there. That's how guaranteed the future is. But there's also this daily reality that I'm coming out of the world. I have to remember to pull myself out of this world and out of its context and not thinking like the world thinks and not behaving like the world behaves and not buying into the lies. So there's, there's the reality that I'm, all, it's, I'm as good as in heaven right now. Because if I drop dead right here, that's where I'm going. I know it. It's guaranteed. But in the meantime, until that day comes, I'm to continually live outside of this world, pulling myself away from this world and towards what God would have me do. The world hates you. It really does hate you. Now, you may think, well, no, we get along pretty good. There's something wrong with that picture. Because he says, it hates you as much as it hated him. Now, what's the difference? Well, he was completely obedient to the will of God. He always did the will of God to the point of death, Philippians 2 tells us. I don't always do that. But the more I do the will of God, guess what? That hatred will increase 10 times over. The more we do the will of God, that is the key to this whole chapter, is doing the will of God according to what he would have us do. And when I do, I will share in his suffering. It, it's going to happen. You know, what, what we talked about this morning and, and right before we prayed is that the sad thing is that in my life, and it's probably true of your life, is that many of us really don't suffer for doing the will of God. And, and, and I don't know what to write that off to any, any more than just, I don't do the will of God as much as I should. Um, I blend in too much. I don't want to offend anybody. I, I don't want to be ridiculed, rejected, and so I just keep my mouth shut, and I don't speak out, and, and so I don't suffer. And, well, at the end of the day, the reason I'm not suffering is probably because I'm just not doing the will of God. I'm not doing what he would call me to do. Because the more, at least according to Peter, the more I do the will of God, the more I will suffer. And it's kind of sad to me that we have to look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, or we have to look at China, Russia, Iran, Iraq, and all these countries where Christians, if they just even say I'm a Christian or mention the name of Christ, can die for it. But here in America, I can say I'm a Christian, and I may get, you know, people might roll their eyes and go, oh, one of those. But I'm not going to suffer. I, I doubt there's anybody in the room that's lost their job because they spoke out for Christ. There may be, but it's pretty rare right now. I think it's coming. I think it's going to increase. But the reality is I should welcome it. I should welcome the suffering because it comes from being obedient. Over in Philippians, Paul says this, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Man, I, I'm tracking with him right there. That's me too. Preach it, Paul. I want that. I want the power, the, 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 him being raised from the dead. I want all that comes with that. And then he goes on, I want to suffer with it. Wait, wait a minute, Paul. Wait, uh, you just lost me. I want the power. I don't want the suffering. See, Paul saw them as two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. 
I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. See, he had a future in mind. He knew that the goal was resurrection from the dead, resurrected body, redemptive body, living with him in eternity. That's what his focus was. And in the meantime, you know what? If I have to suffer for him, I will. And this is a guy that knew suffering. He knew what it meant to speak out on behalf of God and suffer for it. He was beaten. He was stoned and left for dead. He was constantly having to run for his life. He was ridiculed. He was rejected by his own, and yet he just kept on going. Why? Because it perfected him. It made him stronger. We share in the suffering and death of Christ as we live in obedience as he did. And we got to keep that in mind. It's so important. There's a day coming when I will share in his resurrection, when I will be raised up new. I'll have a new body, a new life, a new eternity with him, no more sin. But in the meantime, I'm to live this life welcoming the trials because I know God is using them in my life. Paul says this in Romans, when he, Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, where is he? Sitting at the right hand of the Father, he lives for the glory of God. So you, you guys, me, should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Isn't that the, that's the key right there. Don't let sin control the way you live. That's the battle we face every day. Do not give in to the sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. See, Paul says the same thing Peter's saying. Do what is right. Live for God. Do what he would have you to do. And guess what? When you do, you will suffer. Don't be surprised. But also rejoice because you know, again, he's going to change the way you live through the suffering. He's going to refine you, perfect you. So don't let sin control the way you live. Don't give in to your flesh. I have this new nature in Christ, new life in Christ. So do you. But here's the reality. It will cause you pain. It will cause you to suffer. You will, the more godly you live, the more conflict you will encounter. And a lot of you guys could testify to that. The more you live for him, the more conflict comes into your life. Why? Because the world hates you. See, the, the world doesn't hate um, lazy Christians, half-hearted Christians, um, carnal Christians, if you believe in such a thing, those who don't really read their Bible, who don't really grow in their faith. Satan, is he could care less about those kinds of Christians. He doesn't even fear Christians who go to church every Sunday. What he fears are Christians who do the will of God, who live their life according to the will of God, every area of their lives, and who dedicate their entire lives to the will of God. That he hates. Those are the ones that he attacks. Those are the ones with a target on their back. So he goes on in verse 14, he says, if you're insulted for what? The name of Christ. Remember, that's the key. If you're insulted because you're insulting, you deserve to be insulted. If, if you're treated like a jerk because you are one, you deserve to be treated like a jerk. But if you're insulted for the name of Christ because you're a believer, he says, you are blessed. 
Really? Yes, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what he's telling me is that every time I live for God and I suffer as a result of that, I am blessed because guess what? The very fact that I'm doing the will of God proves that the spirit of God rests on me. I'm, I'm obedient because of the power he's given me and I'm blessed for it. He is perfecting me. He is making me more like Christ. It's very similar to what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you. Why? Because you're my followers. It goes completely against human nature, the way we think. God blesses you when people mock you, persecute you, and lie about you for being one of my followers. You're actually blessed. It hurts. It's painful. Nobody likes to be called names. Nobody likes to be called a hypocrite. Nobody likes to be reviled, ridiculed. But guess what? It's actually a blessing because you're living in obedience to God. And God will reward you for it. So in Philippians, Paul says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ, that good news that changed you. Live in a way that brings honor to that calling. For you've not been given the, not only been given the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. That's a game changer as far as I'm concerned, to see suffering for him as a privilege. I think Paul saw life that way. I think Peter saw life that way. They saw the idea of suffering for him is a privilege that I get to do this for him after all that he's done for me. That's a, that's a whole new way of looking at life, guys. He goes on and says, we're in the struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. Paul was constantly struggling for the gospel, struggling for the faith, suffering for Christ because he saw it as a privilege, not a punishment. See, if I do good and I suffer, my natural tendency is to go, okay, why, why is God doing this to me? Why are you punishing me? What, what, have I, what have I done wrong? You haven't done anything wrong. I'm just working in your life to ex expose some areas in your life that you didn't see. And they're coming as a result that you're being obedient. And you're going to see some things. Here's, here's how it shows up in my life. Um, I could teach this lesson today. Walk, walk off the platform, go to my office and feel like that went really well. I feel good about that. I, I did what I felt like he wanted me to do. I said what I felt like he wanted me to say. And then I get an email. And that email says, I totally disagree with you. You're a hack. Not only that, you're a heretic. You don't even know how to teach. Who told you you have the gift of teaching? What in the world do you think you're doing standing up there? This is the last time I've ever come. And just light me up. What's going to be my natural tendency? I'm going to write them back. Oh, yeah? I'll craft this email that will just singe the eyebrows on his face. I'll kick him out of the kingdom. I'll do whatever I can. I have more power than he knows. I'm going to want to react. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get upset. And then I'm going to start to doubt, what, what if he's right? What if, what if he's not the only one that feels that way? He's just a, one brave enough to write. What? And then the doubt starts to come and the, the fear, and I begin to see it as, Lord, what, what, did, I, what, what, what did I say was wrong? What, did I mistreat your word? And, I, and all this stuff starts bubbling up inside, anger, fear, doubt 
concern. See, what, what God's going to do, and, and believe me, guys, that, that does happen. And what it forces me to do is look in my life and say, okay, what are, what are you so upset about? Okay, somebody said something you didn't want to hear. Let's say they're right. What are you going to do with that? Well, I guess I need to confess it. I'm, I, maybe I did teach it wrong. Maybe I didn't study as hard as I should have. What if they're wrong and they just, that's their opinion. What are you going to do with that? Well, it, it, it hurt my pride. Why do you have so much pride? Are you doing this for them or are you doing this for me? And he's allowing that to process in my life and bring to the surface some areas I was blind to. Pride, arrogance, resentment, the desire to get back, revile when reviled. That's a good thing. Now, do I enjoy going through that process? No. And oftentimes, I'll go ahead and write the email and it send and then immediately want it back because I said some things I probably shouldn't have said which just reveals even more about my sinful nature. See, this is a good thing in the hands of God. It's not a punishment. It is actually a privilege. And it, it, should re- it creates this response. As I grow to understand it more, I should want to rejoice. Really? I should see it as a blessing. I can actually do that. And I should want to glorify God because of it? Yes, because now I'm beginning to understand why it happens. I'm doing good, and I am being, in a way, tested because of it. You know, he, he tells us, this is so obvious to me, but I think he has to say it. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? Don't suffer for that. Don't, don't be a thief. Don't be a liar. Don't be a meddler, a gossiper. Because if you do that, you will suffer. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the right reason. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Glorify God. Why? Because I'm suffering for him and I'm being changed by him. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be under the hand of God as he works in my life, changing things that need to be changed that I didn't see. There's no shame Attached for, there is shame attached to suffering for wrong. In other words, if you lie, if you're a cheat, if you're dishonest, you should suffer for it and you should be ashamed of it. But there is no shame attached to doing what God would have you do. And people may say things about you and somebody may disagree with me and somebody may choose to vote with their feet and never come back. But you know what? I am not ashamed of what I do. And what, this is what I feel like God's called me to do. Do I do it well? Maybe, maybe not. Do I always do it right? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm, I know my heart and I know what I'm trying to do. And I need to not be ashamed of doing what God's called me to do. I'm going to suffer as he did. How? Innocently and unjustly. That's how we should view this. I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going to be obedient. And if I suffer, I suffer because I know I'm innocent. And I know my suffering is not just the ridicule, the shame, the anger, the reviling. See, our suffering for Christ is a reminder that we also share in his glory. Just as he suffered and was glorified, we suffer right now and someday we'll be glorified. This is a very short season of time in the grand scheme of things, guys. It's, suffering is not a threat, it's a hope. Why is it a hope? Because he's always changing us. He's always perfecting us. 
And the pattern of his his life of suffering and then glorification is the pattern for my life. Suffering, glorification. I'm not yet glorified. I'm not yet there yet. And in the meantime, he is perfecting me. He is changing me. He is perfecting me, refining me. And suffering is as much a reality as my future glorification. And that should remind us, guys, he said I'm going to suffer. He said I would have trials. I am. He also said I'm going to be glorified. And I will be. I can trust it. It is coming. It's a reality. I love this in Deuteronomy, uh, thinking about the Israelites as they were getting ready to go into the land. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years. So here they are. They've been through the wilderness for 40 years. The older generation died off who 40 years earlier refused to go into the land because they didn't think they could take it. They didn't trust God. So here they are 40 years later, a whole new generation. They're getting ready to go in. And Moses said, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness these 40 years, humbling you and testing you. Why? To prove your character. See, that's what this is all about. We're kind of in this wilderness experience waiting to get to glory, and we're having our character tested all the time to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Would you do what is right? Would you do what God would have you do? Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. Remember, they grumbled and complained. We don't have anything to eat, and so he gives them manna. And then when they had manna, we're tired of manna. Can we have something else? He gives them quail. They they get tired of quail. Always exposing their character. He goes, he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This period of time that you're in, that I'm in, this Wilderness experience until we get to glory is testing our character all the time. And that's what this topic of suffering is all about. As I do the will of God, live according to his commands, I will suffer. And he's using it to perfect me, to teach me, and in many ways to humble me. Now, verse 17 gets, this is a really interesting passage. And you've probably heard it before. And I have misused this passage so many times over the years. And I think so many Christians have as well. It says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, when you hear that verse, what immediately comes to your mind? Man, he's coming into the temple with a whip. And he's going to clean house. You guys are so screwed up. And he's, man, he's coming. You better, you better, you better tremble. Judgment's coming. It's going to start here. That's how I've used this verse. Boy, he's, he's going to clean house. The church is fouled up. It's got money changers. Ron's a money changer. He's out there collecting money this morning. He's going to come and he's going to turn over the money changers' tables and he's going to clean it. That is not what this is teaching. That's not what this is teaching. Again, keep it in its context. What's he talking about? He's talking about suffering. He says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's he mean? What's the point? What does suffering have to do with judgment? Well, the key to understanding this is what does judgment mean in the language that it was written in? In the Greek, it means judgment, but it also means evaluation. I hear the word judgment, and I automatically think judgment, persecution, judgment, punishment. But this particular word is multifaceted, as most Greek words are, and it can actually actually have a positive side. It has the idea of assessment. He's basically saying God is judging and assessing his church. 
Judgment, assessment begins here. He's, you know what he's really concerned about is us, the church. And so he's always judging or assessing his church to see what needs to be changed. How can this be improved? Because guess what? We need improvement. I'm saved, but I'm still being sanctified. I'm positionally holy, but I'm not effectively holy. I still got some unholiness about me. Same thing with you. So my sins are always being exposed. That's just what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He was always exposing their weakness. Okay, I'm going to let you go without food and see what happens. What happened? They complain, they whine, they moan. Okay, I'm going to give you food. Let's see what happens. They complain, they whine, they moan. He's always testing us to reveal in us what our real problem is. The problem was not food. It was trust. I gave you manna. You don't even have to do anything but go pick it up. And then you hoard it, and it rots on you. Your problem has nothing to do with food. It has to do with trusting me. You see, that's what this is all about. It's not about your finances. It's not about your health. It's, not, it's about do you trust God for all those things? And that's what was true of them. So he's always assessing, assessing his church, his body, his beloved. And as a result, we're always being purified. And we're always being made increasingly more holy. That's, that's what this is all about. It's a positive, not a negative. This this is not about him punishing you. This is about him perfecting you. As you do good, you will suffer. It will expose areas in your life that need to change so that you can do more good for which you will suffer so that he can expose more of your life that needs to change so that you can do more good. And it's, it's perfecting you. It's making you increasingly more holy. Why? Because he wants to build his church. The gates of hell will not stand against a healthy church, a growing church, a prosperous church. Back in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, to do good deeds, to do good works that are acceptable to God. That's why we exist. And so God is always perfecting his church. That's why we suffer. We do good, we suffer. We suffer, we have our sins exposed. We confess them. He removes them. We move on. We do more good. And it's this sanctifying cycle, so to speak. It produces holiness in my life, and ultimately it will result in my glorification and your glorification. And here's what jumps out at me about this, is I'm going to be spared future judgment. See, my judgment happens right now in the form of his assessing. I, you do good, you suffer, it exposes some areas in your life. I judge those, you remove them with the help of the Holy Spirit, and then you grow in holiness. My judgment for what it is, is right here and now. Any suffering I have is right here and now, but guess what? I won't suffer in eternity, and I won't be judged in eternity. And we're not going to have time to look at these, but I encourage you to go back and read these two passages. They're in your notes, Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. They're um, prophetic passages having to do with judgment. See, guys, we are not going to be judged in the future because our judgment has already been, been done on the cross. But we do suffer his assessing right now, the exposure of our sin. As we do good and we suffer, we have our sins exposed so that we can confess them. 
Then he goes on in verse 18, he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Again, this is a misused verse. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to get saved or I'm barely going to make it by the skin of my teeth. The NASB has, is a better translation. He says, if it is with, dif with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? See, what he's saying is the same thing Jesus said. We will have difficulty in this life on the way to our future glorification, our ultimate salvation. This is hard. Being a believer is not easy. Doing the will of God is not always fun. We will suffer for it, but guess what? It will result in your glorification. There is a benefit. There is closure to it. So our judgment is in this life in the form of the trials and tests. Our judgment results in righteousness, growth in likeness, but the godless face a different judgment. And this is why your behavior is so important in this world. We're being refined right now. The lost are not. They're just lost. And they're going to face a judgment. That's why it's so important for us to live godly lives now because it, it has an impact on how they live because ultimately the lost will be judged in the future. Well, verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, that's the key, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Bottom line, keep doing good. Keep doing what God will have you do. Trust God that your suffering has a reason behind it. There is a purpose. When you do good and you suffer, he's perfecting you. And it is to purify you, not to punish you. And that should cause you to rejoice because he is not done. And I'll close with this verse, Philippians 1.6. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God is at work in your life, but you have a job to do. What is that job? Do good. Obey him. Do the will of God. Live for him, and you will suffer for it. Don't be surprised. Greet it as a welcome guest because he's going to use that suffering to perfect you even further. And when we begin to live like that, guess what? We'll start affecting the world around us. We'll start seeing lives changed because of our presence. And that's what it's all about. So here's your discussion questions. When you hear God is going to continue his work in your life until the day Christ returns, how could suffering play a part? We just read that. God's going to keep doing what he began. What he began, he's going to finish. He's going to complete this thing. But how could suffering play a part in that? Secondly, how could you begin to treat suffering for Christ's sake like a welcome house guest instead of an intruder? How would it change your reaction to suffering? Be specific. Then finally, read Philippians 2, 16 through 18 and discuss how the words of Paul impact you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for... The idea that you are at work in my life, and if I just will be obedient, step out in faith, do what you've called me to do, yes, I may suffer for it, but you're going to use that suffering to expose in me areas that you want to change. You're going to reveal my pride. You're going to reveal my lack of humility. You're going to reveal my fear. You're going to reveal so many things about me that I'm blind to that I don't want to see so that I can confess them to you and so that you can remove them from me so that I can grow in Christ's likeness. 
Father, thank you for this process called sanctification. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. But it has an ultimate outcome, and that is my future glorification. And that day is coming. And, Father, we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, help us live godly lives, obedient lives, Christ-like lives in the midst of a godless world. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun, guys.